You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. Idolatry. Now, this one we got to be careful because in the Old Testament it was a lot easier to identify idolatry. You see somebody with an Asherah pole, you see somebody with an idol of Molech, you know, that's pretty clear. What's idolatry though? Idolatry, and it has to be clear listen, is someone that's allowed some person or something to take the place of God, to, to take priority over the Lord. There is sin in everyone's life, Christian or not. We're all human, and human nature includes sin. That's why we need Jesus so much. Today, though, Pastor Danny's going to talk to you about sin within the church body. Followers of Christ can allow things like pride or idolatry and dishonesty to become a part of who they are, even though Jesus has redeemed them. And sometimes, that means other members of the church need to lovingly confront them and urge them towards repentance. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 26 with today's edition of The Living Word. courageous priest confronted King Uzziah, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. King Uzziah also started out humble, but it says when he became successful after years as king, his pride led to his downfall and he wandered from the path. 80 courageous priests go and confront him. He's going into the temple, Uzziah is, to offer incense, which is only reserved for the priest to do. So he's not walking in truth. Eighty courageous priests confront him, but he gets in a rage. He rages at him, and while he's raging at him, leprosy breaks out on his head. And it says they led him out, and he was anxious to get out. And he lived the rest of his life in seclusion and died a dishonorable death and had a dishonorable burial. You read about the prophets one after another. The majority of them, I, I don't want the ministry of a prophet. If you give me a ministry of a prophet, get me Haggai. I'll be Haggai. You read that little two-chapter book, Haggai. Haggai goes and he says what the Lord says for him to say, and everybody repents. Well, that's, that's not typical of the prophets. I was just reading in my devotions this week uh, a prophet named Hanini who had a son who was also a prophet I was reading this morning in my devotions about. Well, Hanini confronted Asa, King Asa. Asa also started out good, but he wandered from the path. And when he was confronted by the prophet Hanini, you know what he did? Asa threw Hanini in prison. Jeremiah was put in prison. On another occasion, the king gave permission for his officials to do whatever they wanted to with Jeremiah, so they threw him in a cistern. 
Didn't have any water in it, but it was wet. It was muddy, and he sank down in the mud, and they left him there to die. God providentially got him out, but that's what it did to him. Jesus said they killed Zechariah. Guess where they killed Zechariah, the prophet? Between the altar and the sanctuary. They killed him at church. The last prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist, Luke chapter 3. Verse 19, when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, who he was having an adulterous relationship with, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Last prophet of the Old Testament and one that introduced us to the initiator of the new covenant, Jesus the Christ. Ultimately, he had his head cut off. He lost his head for the Lord, literally. Now, I could give you more stories, but that's enough. That's enough. That's enough. And here's what just that sampling of stories in the Bible tells us. Here's what it tells us. Listen carefully. The majority of people recorded in this book who were confronted in their sin were not willing to repent. They were not willing. And they suffered the consequences. You do have a few. Nathan confronted David, and thank God David repented. Remember Ahab? Ahab, one of the most wicked kings, one of the most wicked kings in biblical history. But near the end of his life, he repented. And God said, see how he's humbled himself, so I'm not going to bring on him the judgment that I planned. Just because he humbled himself and repented. Now here's the deal. Listen up. A person's unwillingness to repent doesn't lessen my responsibility to confront them. Or yours, ours. You hear that? I'm not responsible for how they respond. That's not my responsibility. I can't control that. I cannot control how they're going to respond. Neither can you. But I'm still called to lovingly, out of heart of compassion, to confront them. You know what some things are that will prevent us from loving confrontation? By the way, didn't share this last night, but it just hits me right now. One of the reasons people won't become re relational in a church body, <laughs> they don't want people to know about their lives. They don't want people to know. Here's the first thing, fear. I mean, just those stories I, I went through very quickly. What, what will they do to me? What will they think of me? Fear. How are they going to respond when I confront them? Past personal failure. I think this may be. Maybe one of the reasons that David did not respond correctly to his two sons, Amnon and Absalom. Remember, Amnon raped his half-sister, Tamar, Absalom's full sister, and Absalom then conspired and carried out a plot, and he murdered his brother, Amnon. David was guilty of both those sins. Adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, and then having Uriah the Hittite, her husband, killed so he could have the woman. Don't let past personal failure keep you from dealing with your children correctly. And don't let past personal failure cause you to not to confront another Christian who's wandered from the truth and going their own way. They might look at you when you confront them and say, wait a minute, you did the same thing. Who are you? Who are you to talk to me? But if you've really repented, don't let your past failure, which may be just like theirs, keep you from lovingly confronting them. You're not responsible for how they respond. Nothing you can do about that. Third thing is my need to repent. Sometimes we're not going to confront somebody else because we got sin in our own lives that needs to be dealt with. And until we let God deal with the sin in our own lives, we can't really confront anybody else. 
And we know that. And here's a fourth. We don't really love them. If we do not discipline our children, it proves we don't really love them. No matter how much emotion you have toward that child. That's what the Bible says. If we really love people, we really love people, we're willing to confront them compassionately and in love because we really care for them. Because what's the motive? What are we trying to do? We're trying to get them back on the path. Back on the path where they can be blessed because the way they're headed, they're headed for the wall. Now, here's some things to consider before we confront hypocrisy. And this ties in with some those first four points, you know, my need to repent. Jesus said to the religious leaders, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? First get the plank out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly how to get the speck out of your brother's eye. Let's make sure we deal with our own sin. Now, look, we understand, too, none of us are perfect. We're not talking about getting to a point where you're perfect. None of us are perfect. James said we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways, but we're talking about a habitual thing. We're talking about somebody who's caught in something and they've wandered. And so they're walking daily, not with the Lord and not according to truth. They've gone their own way. That's the idea. They've gone their own way. And so we got to make sure <laughs> as far as we know, you know, we are, we are on the path. We are trying to, we are, we are humble. We are submitted to the Lord. As a matter of fact, that's the second point, humility. I love the story in 1 Samuel 25. King David and the men that had gathered around him while he's running from Saul and he becomes their leader, uh, they're staying at a place near Carmel. And um, there's a fellow that owns the land and the sheep and all that are there. Uh, his name's Nabal. And David and his men protected Nabal's servants and protected his property. And so it's sheep shearing time, and David thinks it's a great time now to send a messenger to Nabal and say, hey, you got anything for David and his men? And so he sends some of his men as a messenger, and Nabal, whose name means fool, lives up to his name. And he says, who is this David? Every, a lot of people are breaking away in rebellion against their masters. I mean, he didn't give them anything. The men come back to David and tell him, and what does he do? Boys, strap on your swords. We're going to take out Nabal and all the men there in his household. He's going to get vengeance. He's wandered from the path. A man of God, David. Nabal's wife, uh, I don't know how he got this woman because she's got character. I mean, godly character. She hears about what's happening and she tells the servants, uh, get some provisions ready and they load it up on the donkeys and she goes hurriedly to meet David and when she gets to him, she bows, and she speaks to him very humbly. And in her humble confrontation of David in his wayward path, thank God he responds correctly. He repents, and he even thanks her and says, if you had not come today, I certainly would have carried out what I planned. Because of you, I'm not going to do what I intended. And what would have happened did not happen because Abigail Humbly confronted David in his waywardness. Here's another thing to consider. Truth. Wandered from the truth. I want to make sure, we want to make sure when we confront somebody lovingly, out of compassion, that what we're confronting them about 
you can find in this book clearly, all right? How many times did the Pharisees and religious leaders confront Jesus and his disciples condemningly, and what they confronted them about and condemned them for had nothing to do with truth? Healing on the Sabbath, picking kernels of grain in the field on the Sabbath, failing to observe religious ceremonial washings, accusing Jesus of being a drunkard and a glutton, guilt by association. Says, hey, he's hanging out with publicans and sinners. He must be one. Jesus <laughs> accused him of being demon-possessed. And all the accusations had, had no basis of truth at all. Somebody was recently telling me, one of the fellows in the church and one of his clients, I guess as a Christian, goes to another church. You'd recognize the church if I said the name. And I'm not going to mention the name because I'm not trying to slander anybody, but it just was humorous to me. I guess the lady had been in a part of this church for a while, and she'd heard about Calvary Chapel, and she heard that I, um, I preach in jeans. Thank God I wore my other pants today. And uh, she just couldn't get over how, how in the world I could, I could do that. You, really? You're kidding me. You're going to condemn me because I preach in jeans? Where, where, where do you find that in the Bible? Come on. Jesus said to the Pharisees, come on, guys, make a right judgment. You're judging things based on your tradition and based on your own opinion. Hey, let's find something in the word of God. That's what we're looking for. Amen? Amen. Amen. Oh, I know. I know. I know. I, I know. I know. I know you love me. Look, how, how can you come to church in jeans? And look, look at that. You have flip-flops. My goodness. And you're on the front row. <laughs> now, I didn't want to go here on this next one, but I just felt led to go here. This is not some exhaustive list, but here's some sins I think clearly need to be confronted in the church. First, a perversion of the gospel. Remember Galatians 2, Peter at Antioch, when people from James showed up and the circumcised believers, circumcised believers, Peter withdrew and wouldn't fellowship with the uncircumcised believers. And by doing that, by doing that, he's misrepresenting the gospel. Because what he's saying by his actions is circumcision has something to do with my righteousness. And we know that's not true. And so Paul says, I confronted Peter publicly because he was in the wrong. And he said, you know that we circumcised Jews are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, just like the uncircumcised Gentiles. We're both saved by grace through faith. You add anything else to it, you perverted the gospel. Don't tell, you, you find somebody saying, no, you got to be baptized or you're not saved. That's not what the Bible says. You ought to be baptized. I can't understand why a Christian wouldn't want to be baptized, but you're saved before you got baptized. That's why you're getting baptized. You add anything else. To grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You perverted the gospel. Paul was so serious about this that when he writes in Galatians, he says, if me or an angel from heaven preaches to you any other gospel than the one I delivered to you, let him be accursed. He goes on to say the people that are preaching that you got to be circumcised, they, they go ahead and emasculate themselves. I mean, that's pretty serious. We don't want to talk about that. Let's, oh, my goodness. I mean, that's how serious it was. There's way too much of this in the church, folks. You know somebody that's involved with somebody who's not biblically their wife, biblically their wife or husband, biblically their spouse, 
God help our country. I hope you're praying for our nation because we're headed down the path. We're headed down the path of destruction. If it weren't for the church, I think God might have already judged America. But don't get me off on that. And Graham Lodge says if God doesn't ultimately judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's way too much of this in the church. And it goes beyond just the act. You know somebody that's caught up in pornography? You know somebody that's filled with lust? If you really love them, if you really love them, you confront them. Compassion, love, humility, not self-righteous. Obviously lying. And I put a slash dishonesty. You know a Christian, professing Christian, they cheat on their taxes. That's sin. I don't want to pay taxes any more than you do, especially giving it to a government that wastes so much of our money. And yet Romans 13 is in my Bible. Romans 13 is right there, and it specifically says not only submit to the authorities because they're ordained by God, but it specifically says if you owe taxes, pay taxes. Idolatry. Now, this one, we got to be careful. Because in the Old Testament, it was a lot easier to identify idolatry. You see somebody with an Asherah pole, you see somebody with an idol of Molech, you know, that's pretty clear. What's idolatry, though? Idolatry, and it has to be clear, listen, is someone that's allowed some person or something to take the place of God, to take priority over the Lord. You can go back to the second one, and sometimes, you know, you get in a romantic relationship. I've seen it happen. It's so sad. And all of a sudden, a person becomes more important to God. A relationship, a human relationship becomes more important than God. That's idolatry. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God's saying that for our own good. Because he knows that if we make anything else the priority, we're, we've wandered. We've gone our own way. We're headed for trouble. Drunkenness. Do I really need to say anything else about this one? I'm not talking about freedom. You know, look. The Bible does not condemn someone for just having a drink. That's not, that's not permission for you to drink. I didn't say that. You have a problem with it, then you need to stay away from it. But you can't automatically, you shouldn't biblically automatically condemn somebody because you saw them in a restaurant and they had a glass of wine or a beer. I'll leave it at that. I'm going to get some emails on that one, I'm sure. <laughs> this is a tough one. But let me tell you what biblical gluttony is. Let me give you a definition. Overindulgence and overconsumption of food, drink, or wealth items to the point of extravagance or waste. A lot of times, uh, well, Proverbs 23, let me just read it very quickly and we'll put the landing gear down in just a minute. And when you sit to dine with a ruler, note well what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. Do not crave his delicacies, for that food is deceptive. You go down, verse 20, don't join with those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat, for drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Here's one more. Insubmission to authority. And again, it's clear, obvious, insubmission to authority. Obvious rebellion it needs to be confronted lovingly. Now, what do you do? And... Let me go back to the drunkenness real quick and just say something I think is practical uh, for our culture. You know somebody addicted to prescription drugs? You, you, really ought to, you really ought to lovingly talk to them. 
And it's so easy to happen. I just talked to a, a former pastor uh, who, because of a couple of surgeries that didn't go well, he became addicted to prescription drugs. We got a lot of legal drug addicts, unfortunately, in our culture, and some of them are in the church. Now, I'm not against prescription drugs. Don't misquote me. I didn't say that. I'm not against doctors. Neither is the Bible. Uh, but we live in a culture and a society that, that doctors, generally speaking, are just quick to just go ahead and write you a prescription and get you popping the pills. And some of these are, can so easily become addictive. And we have legal drug addicts in our society. And we need to lovingly, if you know someone is like that, lovingly confront them on it. Now, in submission to authority and rebellion, obviously it's clear that they are. Now, what do I do if the person that I confront will not repent? And we're talking again about professing Christians. And don't misunderstand either. I'm not saying we disfellowship someone if you went through the whole pattern for, because they're addicted to prescription drugs. I'm not saying that. But listen to Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That doesn't mean you come to church and say, hey, I confronted John and he wouldn't listen. That means you come to the leadership of the church and you say, we've confronted, I've confronted so-and-so, I've gone back with this person and this person, and we've had a second meeting, and they still refuse to listen, so I'm turning it over to you guys. And then we as a church leadership would be called then to deal with it, and we'd sit down with them. And depending on the sin, depending on the sin, there are times where if they do not listen, we would disfellowship them. We disfellowship people here. We just don't, unless it's necessary, we don't do it publicly. We just disfellowshiped a fellow about a month or so ago. We had disfellowshiped him a few years ago for sin that he needed to be disfellowshiped for because he would not repent of it. It was repeated. And then he gave signs of repentance. We set a path of restoration. He looked like he was doing well. And then God brought to light that the whole time he's privately committing the same sin. And uh, we just disfellowshipped him recently. And listen, the disfellowshipping, do not misunderstand that. The disfellowshipping is for the purpose of handing them over to Satan so that the sinful nature might be destroyed and the spirit saved. In other words, it's the ultimate woodshed, God's ultimate woodshed. When you have to come to a point where you disfellowship with someone, then God's going to use Satan to spank them really hard, really hard, with the purpose, the intention that they would repent. Are you with me? So don't misunderstand that. So Matthew 18 and then uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Boy, this is so clear. Everybody listen up on this. And if you're turning to it, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, in that case, you'd have to leave this world. You understand that, right? But now I'm writing, that, I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. And again, that's not an exhaustive list, but the idea is if they are committing sin, they've wandered from the truth, they're going their own way, and they won't listen, don't associate with them. Well, such a man do not even eat. Do not even eat. Because eating suggests 
fellowship. A meal suggests fellowship. Today on The Living Word, Pastor Danny's been teaching through a series in the book of James. How do you know if a tree that's supposed to bear fruit is alive? Well, that's simple. You see it producing fruit each year and doing what God intended for it to do. The story is the same for you. How do you know if your faith is real, genuine? This will be known by all the spiritual fruit that you produce in your life. So is there life happening in your heart or has that seed just been planted? The book of James calls you to take your faith and let that seed grow and become something beautiful that overflows with fragrance and sweetness clearly coming from God living in you. Keep tuning into this series and learning the truth that's revealed in God's Word. Would you also be willing to pray for us here at The Living Word? As our ministry grows, we want to make sure that we're seeking Jesus first and foremost. We're constantly in need of His guidance, so please pray that we'd recognize His voice and direction. Thank you so much for praying about this. Also, do you live in or near St. Petersburg? If so, we have a special invitation for you. Pastor Danny and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship would love to have you join us for our weekend services. Just go to ccfstpete.church to get more info. Thanks for tuning in today. Join us again for Pastor Danny's next message right here on The Living Word.